There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Billy Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Billy. Hey, Twisters, what up? Welcome back to Twisted Philly, part two of Ms. Rambo, the story of Sylvia Segrist. I'm going to hold the what ups and housekeeping until the end so we can jump right back into Sylvia's story. People at first weren't sure what was going on. This was the day before Halloween, mischief night. So a number of people thought this was some sort of a Halloween prank. You know, someone in a costume who was pretending you know, to be a, a killer. To recap part one, Sylvia Segrist was a resident of Springfield, Pennsylvania, and that's a suburb about 10 miles outside the city of Philadelphia. On Wednesday, October 30th, 1985, Sylvia brought an automatic rifle to the Springfield Mall and in a span of five minutes, killed three people and seriously injured seven others. Sylvia had been diagnosed with schizophrenia in 1985 when she was just 15 years old. And over the next 10 years, Sylvia was institutionalized a dozen times. In the years leading up to the massacre at the Springfield Mall, Sylvia's behavior continued to worsen. She was frequently escorted out of local businesses for intimidating and scaring patrons at the mall, at local libraries and fitness centers. She ranted and raved about the government, the system, and often made threats against society. There were more instances than I can count where Sylvia expressed her desires to hurt other people. In fact, she wrote numerous letters to her former attorney indicating that she wanted to kill people. No one believed these threats except her family. Her mother repeatedly tried to get help for Sylvia, and in the months before the murders, Ruth Segrist tried to have her daughter committed. But since Sylvia hadn't demonstrated violent behavior, she couldn't be committed involuntarily. Now that's the one-minute version of how we got here. If you haven't listened to part one, I suggest you stop now Go back, give that a listen, and then come on back here and join us for part two. We ended part one just after the murders at the Springfield Mall on October 30th, 1985. Sylvia started shooting around 3.30 p.m., and about 15 minutes later, local and state police arrived, and they had Sylvia in custody while mall shoppers and emergency responders tended to the injured. She was arraigned that night and repeatedly said, I did it, just kill me now. Initially, Sylvia was charged with two counts of murder on top of a number of other charges for the deaths of two-year-old Rafis Cosman and Augusto Ferrara. But then less than a week after the shooting, a third murder charge was added. Local gynecologist Dr. Ernest Trout, who was one of eight shoppers injured during Sylvia's shooting spree, succumbed to his injuries and died, raising the death toll to three. The day after the murder, Sylvia was held in a Delaware County prison, and while she was there, she was interviewed by the director of Haverford State Hospital for a commitment assessment. And there we have it. Her mother tried to get Sylvia committed for months, even years, but her efforts ended in vain because Sylvia hadn't committed violent acts. Well, the events at the Springfield Mall was certainly enough to warrant a 302 commitment interview. Now, the director from Haverford State had some very interesting things to say about Sylvia after the commitment interview he held with her. He said she was very seriously ill, and he actually said he thought that was pretty obvious. In his medical opinion, she was both dangerous to herself and to others, and she should be considered seriously mentally disturbed. 
So I try to imagine how Sylvia's mother must have responded to all of this when no one would listen to her. She did everything in her power to prevent something like what happened at the mall from happening, yet she had absolutely no recourse. A few days after the murder, Sylvia's mother was quoted as saying that she thought Sylvia was insane, absolutely insane. And now that can be documented. She can't harm herself and she can't harm society at last. She said Sylvia had many happy moments as a young child, but people get sick. No one knows why. Some people get cancer and some people go insane. It's still sick. A five-day commitment was issued for Sylvia Segrist and then it was extended to 20 days. And Sylvia was transferred to Mayview State Hospital in Bridgeville, Pennsylvania, which is out near Pittsburgh in the western side of the state. At the time, Mayview was the only facility in the state with a high-security women's forensic unit. So women accused of violent crimes were held there while doctors determined if they were legally competent to stand trial. Mayview closed down back in 2008, and today, like, it's creepy as fuck when I look at it online. Seriously, it looks like the sort of place where I would actually want to go and take pictures. It's spooky and gothic. And the buildings are being overtaken by trees and foliage, but they're not that demolished. Like, to look at it, you can tell that this place was probably spooky as hell when it was operational. So Sylvia stayed at Mayview with its heavy security doors and metal caged hallways and entrances with constant monitoring and surveillance via microphones until her first competency hearing in December of 85. The judge for Sylvia's competency hearing believed that she was completely incapable of cooperating with her public defenders, and the assistant district attorney, William Ryan, didn't object to that ruling. So unanimously, everyone involved in the case, at least during that first competency hearing, felt that Sylvia was incompetent to stand trial. Both the DA's expert and Sylvia's court-appointed psychologist felt that she was unable to understand the charges against her or the extent of what she had done. She was also arraigned for the third murder at that time, and that was done privately in the judge's chambers, and then another competency hearing was scheduled for March of 86. Just a few days after this preliminary competency hearing, Sylvia Segrist was transferred from Mayview to Norristown State Hospital, where there was a new female forensic unit opening up, and it was better equipped to support Sylvia's needs. Plus, Norristown is much closer to Delaware County than Mayview was, only about 40 minutes away. So over the next few months leading up to that second competency hearing in March 1986, both sides of the case worked to determine Sylvia's competency. In early March, Delaware County Judge Robert Kelly ruled that Sylvia Segrist was competent to stand trial. Since the shooting, Sylvia had been in supportive, nurturing, and stress-free environments in psychiatric hospitals. She was finally receiving much-needed treatment for her schizophrenia, so now she was considered competent which basically meant that she was in a state where she could understand the charges against her and she could participate in her defense by cooperating with her attorneys. One of her defense attorneys, Ruth Schaefer, said that Sylvia's mental state was precarious and would need to be closely monitored because the strain of a trial could cause her to decompensate and become incompetent again. About a week after the competency hearing in May, during a pretrial hearing, Sylvia submitted a statement to the court. Now, of course, everyone and their mother wanted a copy of that statement, but the district judge declared it was sealed. So a local newspaper, the Philadelphia Daily News, initiated legal proceedings to get a copy of Sylvia's statement. They claimed since the hearing was public record, Sylvia's statement submitted during that hearing should also be public record. And they succeeded. So I'm going to read you Sylvia's statement, and I'm going to read this verbatim. The end of commerce, the end of the post office, and the end of money. There is something that looks interesting here. Search for vile reasons because it is 150 years before he assaulted me 
Mr. Ambassador, Mr. Ambassador, what further questions, Mr. Lyle, in barbecued manner, watch your language? This preliminary hearing lasted just a few hours, and the statement was the only evidence submitted by Sylvia's defense. So remember, this statement was submitted at a time when Sylvia had been ruled competent. I can't imagine what kind of a statement she would have prepared if she was incompetent. I mean, seriously, reading this statement, she's obviously still struggling considerably with her mental health and competency. For the prosecution, there were over a dozen witnesses, including survivors of the shooting who had been struck by Sylvia's bullets. John Lawfer also testified, and that's the young man who disarmed Sylvia. Antoinette Ferrara and Grace Trout also testified. Both women were widowed because of Sylvia's shooting spree. And they described their husbands lying on the mall floor covered in blood. Sylvia's trial didn't begin until a few months later, but here's what confuses me. Um, here's what bothers me and, quite honestly, even frustrates me about this case. So if we go back to November 1985, just after the shootings, the first competency hearing ruled that Sylvia was incompetent to stand trial, yet the judge thought she was competent when she committed the crimes. We go on to a second competency hearing in December. She was still considered incompetent by yet another judge, but in March, Sylvia Segrist was ruled competent. I actually didn't realize that a competency hearing focuses on whether or not the accused understands the proceedings and what they've been charged with and whether or not they can participate in their own defense. So I thought competency meant was this person competent and of sound mind when they committed their crime. And, and that's certainly a portion of it. But these hearings were really to determine whether or not she was competent enough to understand her charges and the court proceedings. Now, Sylvia was completely out of her mind when she committed these crimes. So I don't know how she can be considered competent when she showed up at the Springfield Mall with a gun. For those who study the human mind, Sylvia's condition is well known. Schizophrenia is a very serious mental condition characterized by the individual not being able to perceive reality as it really is. When a schizophrenic is talking to themselves, they're really responding to the voice in their head. The voices are generally not nice. They don't say, you look pretty today. They may say, you're, you're an evil person, and if you don't kill your neighbor, you're going to go to hell. Part of Sylvia's delusional system involved military power and control over people, and that she would be the one hurting other people rather than other people hurting her. When we look at her history, it could, I think, be foretold that she was going to commit some kind of violent act. When I dropped part one last week, I received a lot of comments on Twitter about the episode, and many of the listeners and fellow podcasters and I were talking about the state of mental health in this country. True Crime Review made a comment on Twitter that sometimes the criminal equals the first victim. And I think that comment sums up everything I feel now about Sylvia and the victims of her horrible actions over 30 years ago. So what do you do when someone has an obvious mental illness and desperately needs treatment? I told you in episode one, I don't know, you know, other than somebody dealing with some depression and anxiety and feeling like they need to talk to a therapist. I know a little about those circumstances. Some of us have suffered depression, anxiety at one point in our life or another, um, including me, including my daughter, including family and friends. So I know how to find a therapist, and I'm sure a lot of people know how to find a therapist, but are people able to recognize when they need help, especially when their condition is as severe as Sylvia's? 
In cases like hers, when you're too sick to realize how significant your condition has become and family tries to intervene, what rights do the family have? What rights does the patient have? And what intervention is available? I honestly didn't know. So I turned to a listener, an amazing woman named Jen. Jen is a Twisted Philly listener and an adult mental health professional. One of the comments Jen shared with me, and I agree with her, is that too often cases involving mental health are sensationalized without addressing or answering the questions about what we as a society could or should be doing differently or better to support mental health issues. Sometimes coverage of cases like this one promote the stereotypical stigma of mental health. So I asked Jen if I could interview her, and based on our schedules, the best way to do that was via email. Now, Jen told me she's not an expert, but she is a mental health professional with great passion and commitment for supporting people with mental illness. I sent Jen a bunch of questions, which she agreed to answer. The questions I asked her once she read them, she told me they had very complex answers, in part because as a layperson, I just sit back and wonder, why couldn't anyone get Sylvia Segrist the help she needed before it got this bad? You know, I wonder what would possess someone to get a gun to walk into a crowded public place and start shooting. Sylvia Segrist's story isn't the first of its kind, and it certainly isn't the last. There have been similar stories for the past 30 years, Columbine, Sandy Hook. But what I think is different about Sylvia is the effort her family made to stop her before something like this happened, right? They knew she was desperate and unwell. They knew she had lost her connection with reality. And that, to me, was a big difference between this case and a number of other spree killings that we've seen over the past 30 years, where more often than not, you'll hear people say, wow, I didn't know he was depressed, or I never believed they would do something like this. Because Sylvia Segrist was just 15 when she was diagnosed with schizophrenia, one of the first questions I asked Jen was about resources for parents if they suspect their child has a mental health issue. Should they talk with their child's pediatrician? Should they talk to a school counselor? I didn't realize until speaking with Jen that adult and children's mental health services are completely split. But honestly, that makes sense, right? Because you have pediatricians and you have regular doctors, children's doctors versus adult doctors. So the same thing exists in the mental health space. And the good news is that in the last 10 years or so, there have been more services focused on transition age patients, and that's patients between the ages of 18 and 26. And this is to help coordinate a transition for someone moving from children's services to adult services. Jen made a great point that if there's a significant investment in children's mental health and transitioning them to adult programs, there's less of a chance that the mentally ill will have to stay in the system for the rest of their lives. If anybody listening or anyone you know thinks that a child may be suffering from mental health issues, regardless of the diagnosis, talk to someone. Jen was clear about that. Trying to handle a difficult situation alone, like that's not the answer. Talk to a pediatrician, a school counselor, anyone you think can help. Now, Jen was kind enough to share a bunch of resources about the state of Pennsylvania, like the Department of Human Services at www.dhs.pa.gov. Once you get on that website, you want to click on the Citizens link and then Mental Health Services. There's also support through the county designed to meet the mental health needs of young people. And at least in PA, that website is www.parecovery.org. Therapy is so important and it can be so valuable and it doesn't mean that someone is damaged. Jen, I'm really glad you wrote that in your responses because I've known people who think if their child needs therapy, then they are failing as a parent. And Jen made a point of saying that is absolutely not true. 
you know, when I think about the 80s when Sylvia Segrist was at the peak of her mental illness and I think of my own difficult teenage years, I didn't have schizophrenia, but I struggled as a teenager. Therapy was like airing your dirty laundry out to dry. You don't talk about that stuff outside the family, or at least that's what my family thought. And even though we'd like to think we've come a long way in the last 30 years, when I think about stories in the news like Sylvia's, there is so little talk about resources and so much talk about violence. Jen shared a national resource for me to include and share with all of you, and that's the National Alliance on Mental Health, NAMI. Many communities have NAMI chapters for local support, and sections of their website are dedicated to teens and young adults. You know, reading Jen's responses to my questions made me hopeful and made me realize how little I know about this subject. I wanted to know how we're failing and yeah, there's definitely ways we could be doing better, but Jen lifted my spirits by telling me how we're also getting things right with groups like NAMI and the Mental Health First Aid Program, which is a public education program that teaches skills needed to identify and understand and then respond to the signs of a behavioral crisis. Sylvia's trial began on June 19th in 1985. An assistant district attorney, William Ryan, focused on Sylvia's statements to police during the hours after the massacre at the mall. Within the first few hours that she was in custody, police claimed that Sylvia asked them, how many did I kill? How many did I get? And the detective transporting her to prison held up two fingers because it would be another week before the death toll climbed to three. And then Sylvia was quoted as saying, oh, fuck, only two or any of them kids? Okay, I swear to God, when I read that, I thought, that does not sound like someone who doesn't know what they're doing. That does not sound like someone who is incompetent. It sounds like someone who is very much aware of what they've done, and they are trying to cause as much pain and damage as possible. But I have to take a step back, and I have to keep reminding myself of that as I produce this episode. Sylvia was diagnosed as legally insane, as a paranoid schizophrenic, and that was almost immediately after the murders. Her court-appointed psychiatrist and her attorneys claimed her statements made at the time of arrest were being taken out of context, that it was the incoherent babble of a disturbed mind. Now, I agree it was a disturbed mind. I don't know whether it was incoherent. I mean, she was certainly speaking about the events that had just occurred. But the argument that can be made for Sylvia's state of mind is that even though she was making these horrible statements, there was no connection to what the repercussions were. There was no connection to what the devastation on the other side of her actions would be. That's the piece that was missing because of her schizophrenia. But that's not how the assistant district attorney positioned it. William Ryan argued that Sylvia was legally sane when she committed these shootings. He contended that she methodically planned this attack. And I can understand why he would take that position. She tried to purchase a gun months before the shootings. When she got turned down at Kmart, she went to another store she lied about her mental health issues, right? All of that takes some level of thought and planning. She bought a mail-order banana clip for the gun that holds 30 rounds of ammo. That takes time and planning. She went to a local shooting range just three days before the murder to practice. And again, just like stories from the mall and from the fitness center all throughout episode one, there were stories coming out of the gun range of people talking about Sylvia ranting there, complaining about political philosophies, complaining about the government or talking nonsense, but nobody did anything about it. Sylvia's trial lasted about a week and there were so many witnesses at her trial. There were medical and legal professionals for both sides, defense and prosecution. There were victims who survived the shooting and family members of victims who lost their life at the hands of Sylvia's gun. 
Her mother testified about her years of mental illness, violent outbursts towards family, suicide attempts, and delusions. Out of all of the witnesses, there was one that really stood out to me in particular, and that was a mall security guard named Jan McCormick. As the horror of what's happening sinks in, some store owners realize the shooter is no stranger. There were reports of her having shown up at the mall in days before the shooting and actually marching up and down in front of, front of stores, in front of the doors. So Jan testified about one of Sylvia's recent visits to the mall about a week before the shooting. Sylvia was pacing again. In fact, to Jan, the way that she was moving was so rigid that this security guard thought Sylvia was walking cadence like they do in the military. When Sylvia noticed the security guard watching her, her pace quickened and she got frantic and she began to hit herself in the head. Jan walked away because she didn't want to further agitate Sylvia and she didn't want anyone to get hurt. Jan McCormick testified that the security guards at the Springfield Mall were instructed by their boss never to approach Sylvia Segrist because she was prone to violent outbursts. And then a week later, Sylvia comes back with the automatic rifle. She's also been refusing to take her medication. They're very suspicious of medication. They're suspicious of anyone trying to get them to take medication. She feared that her medication was hurting her. She feared that her family was out to get her and to hurt her and to send her back to a hospital. One of the questions that I kept asking myself while researching Sylvia Segrist's story was, why wasn't she on meds? She'd been diagnosed 10 years ago, 10 years before she bought a gun, 10 years before she repeatedly threatened to do something like this. Like she'd been hospitalized so many times, how could she not be on medication? And the only reference I found about medication, and I mentioned this in episode one, is a few weeks before the shootings when she went to the mall to get a refill for Xanax. And from what I know about Xanax, it's used to treat anxiety and panic disorders. So sure, that probably would have been a benefit to Sylvia. She was said to be in frequent states of anxiety, but her issues ran so much deeper than that. So I asked Jen, my Twisted Philly listener and mental health professional, can the government mandate a patient take their medication? Like, can you be forced to take your meds if you're schizophrenic? And again, Jen, I got to thank you. Like, I can't thank you enough. You were an amazing resource for this episode. And what you said really made me reconsider my own thinking. So Jen's answer wasn't as simple as a yes or no. What she said, the answer is, it's complicated. Yes, sometimes, or depends on the state. So there's no rule of governance here. The medical community looks at the decision to use medication or not use medication as a very personal decision. Even in life or death situations, an adult has the option to refuse treatment. And thank you for that, Jen, because I was so wrapped up in why wasn't Sylvia on meds? Wouldn't that have prevented her delusions? Couldn't that have prevented what happened at the mall that I really wasn't even thinking straight? Lots of us have living wills so we can make decisions about our medical care. Some people have health conditions that require medication, like high blood pressure or cholesterol, and they either do take prescriptions for them or they don't take prescriptions for them. Or some people use a combination of lifestyle and diet and holistic meds and Western meds. And that's our right as adults to make a choice about what works for us. Reading Jen's response to my question was like a great big can of what the fuck to the face because like how could I even ask about being forced to take medication? I know how. 
I asked because I wasn't looking at mental illness in the same way that I would look at a physical illness. That's a problem. That's a problem not just with me, but it's a problem that I think exists throughout the country. And I was also only thinking of severe mental illnesses, sufferers who face delusions and destructive behavior, and I guess I thought they shouldn't have the same rights as I do, but they should. You know, we might think this is a small price to pay to treat mental illness, but there are some really heavy side effects from some of these medications. You know, loads of issues that are really hard for people to manage every day while you're taking something that is supposed to make you better. And think about it. I mean, I know you guys see all the drug commercials on TV just like I do. My daughter and I have this sort of inappropriate game that we play where we try to guess the drug based on the list of side effects. There's a medicine advertised on TV right now with a side effect of fatal diarrhea. Like seriously, how is that better than the condition that's being treated? Why do we think about physical illness and patient rights differently than we think about mental illness? Maybe you don't, but I did, and I have to admit that. And Jen really helped me realize how flawed my thinking was. And why shoot up the mall? Like, what was it about the Springfield Mall that Sylvia Segrist obsessed over? I remember as a teenager, like, wondering that when this happened down the street from where I lived, and when it happened at a place that I used to hang out with my friends. Like, why would somebody shoot up the mall? Well, Sylvia thought commerce was evil. And so her mental illness rendered her incapable of feeling any of the necessary emotions that would help her understand the devastation of her actions. Psychologists tried to understand and explain Sylvia Segrist's reasons for her crime. And I'll be honest, when it comes to their explanation, I didn't quite understand how someone thinks this way. But remember, this is a mind that has broken with reality, thought, and emotion. Sylvia wanted to be a soldier, and she thought she was a soldier. So... In this way, she thought that she was starting a war. The army trained her to shoot people, even just for the very short time that she was there. So in a way, she thought she was doing her duty as a soldier. She also wanted to call attention to the evil and injustice in the world and stop people who were funding nuclear war with their commercialism. She also thought she would be killed or go to jail. And to Sylvia, both of those options sounded better than being committed to a mental hospital again by her parents. Assistant District Attorney William Ryan thought Sylvia was a failure and someone who just wanted attention. He went so far as to ask, couldn't Sylvia Segrist be faking her condition? She did well in the short time she was in college in psychology classes, but medical experts said that was impossible. It's impossible to fake 10 years of schizophrenia. The case went to the jury on June 26th, and the jury wasn't deciding her guilt. I mean, we all knew she did it. The jury's job was to decide if Sylvia was legally sane or insane when she committed the crime. The defense team argued not only was Sylvia mentally ill, but she was insane when she went on her shooting rampage. She spent years descending into madness and with a shattered mind that had no way of understanding the results of her actions. But the prosecution argued it took a very clear head to methodically plan a crime like this. So, what did the jury think? Well. The instructions they were given by the judge was that they could either find Sylvia not guilty by reason of insanity, meaning she was sick when she committed her crimes, or they could find her guilty but mentally ill, which meant she was sick when she committed her crimes, but she was also bad. And that's what they found. The jury deliberated for five hours the first night, and then they resumed deliberations the second day on June 27th. Eight men and four women found Sylvia guilty but mentally ill. They believed that she was legally insane and didn't fully understand what she was doing or the repercussion of her actions. 
but she had malicious intent. On October 31st, Sylvia Segrist was sentenced to three life terms for the three murder charges and between 10 to 20 years each for seven attempted murder charges for the injured survivors. She spent the first 90 days of her sentence back at Norristown State Hospital for further evaluation and then eventually she was transferred to Pennsylvania State Correctional Women's Facility in Muncie. By 1989, just a few years after Sylvia Segrist's shooting spree at the Springfield Mall, the state of mental health in the city of Philadelphia was in pretty bad shape. And this was due in large part to the deinstitutionalization of mental health institutes. A lot of parents in the Philadelphia area felt like the mental health system had abandoned them. More often than not, it was families without much support who would provide care, um, arrange treatment, handle crisis situations, for mentally ill children. It was a system in crisis. It was a system that never had enough money, it never had enough staff, and wasn't capable of supporting the number of residents in Philadelphia and the surrounding area who needed mental health treatment. And even though the laws in Pennsylvania made it really difficult to hospitalize people who are mentally ill against their will through involuntary commitment, there weren't really enough beds to go around anyway if you were trying to commit people. So all of this led me to another question for Jen, and that was, what's the status of mental health institutions with commitment laws being so strict and so many fewer facilities, not only in Pennsylvania, but around the country, how are these facilities equipped to help people? So here's what Jen had to say about that. Most often when folks talk about being hospitalized, they're talking about inpatient treatment at a community hospital that has a psychiatric floor or psychiatric department. And these hospitalizations last maybe a few days or a few weeks. Something else that Jen shared with me that was really upsetting, and I have to say I feel really naive that I didn't know this. She talked about the criminalization of mental illness. So when state hospitals started closing down, all of the money that went to state hospitals should have been diverted to community mental health programs to help people transition from the hospital environment to being integrated in their communities and then ongoing outpatient help to support mental health diagnosis, to support ongoing treatment so that they can re-enter society and have positive, fruitful lives. But that money did not get diverted into the communities. And it's heartbreaking. Jails and prisons have practically replaced mental health institutions. So she shared some statistics with me that came from PBS. In state prisons, 73% of women and 55% of men have at least one mental health condition. In federal prisons, it's 61% of women and 44% in men. But local jails, the percentages are even worse. 75% of women and 63% of men are suffering from some form of mental illness. So basically, there are now three times more people with serious mental health issues incarcerated in the U.S. than there are in hospitals. And so here we are, over 30 years after Sylvia Segrist's shooting spree at the Springfield Mall outside of Philadelphia, and close to 50 years since the deinstitutionalization began, and we aren't any closer to solving the mental health crisis in this country. At the time of Sylvia Segrist's rampage, mass murders were considered rare. Defense attorneys, experts, pundits at the time, all tried to find 
a comparable crime to use as comparison to Sylvia's, but they couldn't come up with anything. And they talked about how there was no way to foresee the actions that she would take. Well, unfortunately today, mass murders are no longer rare, but they've become commonplace. I'm not gonna go down the list of mass shootings associated with someone with mental illness. You know those stories as well as I do. And this really is Sylvia's story, but at the same time, it isn't. In some of my research, I learned that in the weeks and months after her arrest, Sylvia's mother, Ruth Segrist, received letters from all over the country. And these letters weren't filled with vitriol or criticism as you might expect, as I was expecting, but they were letters of support from families telling stories of their own. A family with a son who stabbed a coworker, families struggling with children with severe schizophrenia and psychosis. Stories from people who were trying to get the right support for their loved ones and their children, and they were struggling more than was humanly possible. Sylvia Segrist has been living in Muncie State Prison since 1986. She takes her medicine regularly, she exercises, she reads, she visits the library, and she sees a therapist every other week. That will probably be her routine for the rest of her life, and it should be. Her illness is so severe and her actions were so horrific that she is exactly where she should be under constant supervision and treatment. There is something I wish I could say to Sylvia, and it's that now I see her as a victim too. And I did not see her that way before I researched this episode. I knew she had a mental illness, but I didn't give it the level of consideration that I should have. I didn't expect to come out of these episodes feeling differently, but I do. And that in no way diminishes the pain of the 10 people who were shot and the three that lost their lives or their families. They have suffered considerably. But when we talk about suffering, we also have to include Ruth Segrist, Sylvia's mother, who eventually became a mental health advocate. I didn't initially see Sylvia Segrist as a victim. And that's what I would have said if I could talk with her. I wouldn't call her crazy. I wouldn't tell her I remember seeing her on occasion marching in the mall. I would tell her that I tried to understand what happened to her, and although I can't understand why she did what she did back in 1985, I wish things could have been different for her. At the start of this episode, I said I'd leave the housekeeping and what-ups for the end, but I think I'm going to skip them altogether. Except for Jen, who opened my eyes to a better understanding of mental illness and realizing that there are resources available if you can find them and get access to them. I know this episode, this part two of Sylvia's story, was a little different than most of my episodes. It wasn't quite as lighthearted, and it was a little different than most of the true crime tales I've told. So I thank you for taking this more serious journey with me. One of the things that I felt was really important was to take time and talk about the situation with mental illness in this country, resources that are available, resources that aren't available, and hopefully share some education and maybe get you to change your perspective a little bit like I changed mine. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.